Well, Acts chapter 8, verse 4, uh, we are looking at this story that this guy named Luke tells. He's told a story about Jesus in volume 1, known as the Gospel of Luke, and now he's telling a story about what Jesus continues to do by his Spirit through the church in volume 2 called Acts. And stories are, are important because they actually help us understand what things mean. A story frames the meaning of things for you. It has a past and a future, and it helps frame your present. And the reality is Luke doesn't drop a manual on how to do church, right? He just doesn't deliver a manual or an instruction book. What he does is he tells a story. And that story helps frame up the meaning of our own present life because we understand what has come before and where things are going and where we are as characters in the story. And so uh, Luke is concerned with what God has done in and through Jesus and the Spirit, and now by the Spirit through the church. Uh, It's a story of God redeeming humanity. It's a story of God sending the Father, sending the Son, who reveals the Father through the cross and the resurrection, and he sends the Spirit to give us an experience of the reality of who God is in our lives. And so that spirit then brings the power and life of heaven into our reality, uh, into the reality of people who love and trust and receive that gracious gift. And so the spirit then enables the church to bear witness to God's self-giving love in the world. And Luke began by saying that in his former book, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, and now in his present volume, he's continuing to share what Jesus keeps doing and teaching through the church. We looked at chapter 1, the way that Jesus confers an identity on the church. He says, you are witnesses to my reality. And he bestows the gift of the Spirit to say, here is power to be my witnesses, to continually, through your life, point back to me and my reality and my self-giving love. And it's by the Spirit we actually demonstrate the work of Jesus in our life. And so Luke frames up this story using this key word at the beginning of his work. And verse, uh, it's up on the screen here, and in the beginning verses of Luke, he says, uh, I've dealt with all Jesus began to do in volume 1 until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is concerned with is this reign and rule of God invading human hearts and lives, setting the world right through being rightly ordered in our loves and affections and desires by what he's doing in our life. And the end of Acts closes with the same theme. He says, uh, it talks about Paul. When he came to Rome, he was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. Remember, he's an enemy of the state at this point. And he lived there uh, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so the story Luke is telling is a story about the unfolding and unveiling of God's reign and rule, his kingdom. And so the church is, is birthed by the kingdom and points back to the kingdom. And what we're going to see today in today's text is that that kingdom story moves forward and it crosses social barriers and boundaries and it can be received and misunderstood. And so what I want to do this morning is just take a look at how this kingdom story, this narrative of God's kingdom unfolds 
uh, beginning in verse 4. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and read it with me. Now those who were scattered, remember last week we ended with the stoning of Stephen. This guy is persecuted as the first martyr, which is the same word as witness. He bore witness to Jesus and got killed for it. And the, the persecution against the church broke out, and the church is scattered out of Jerusalem. Now verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs he did, uh, right, they paid attention, right? And so, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in the city. There was much joy in the city. So the story picks up with the reality of opposition, when there is a kingdom, there's oftentimes a resistance to the kingdom. And in previous verses, we read that that persecution against the gospel was taking root in Jerusalem, and so everyone in the church is scattered, it says, except for the apostles. The apostles, the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, are still in Jerusalem. And so what this means is that uh, while a great evil is being perpetrated against Jesus' people, God is still using this to advance his purposes. Suffering is so frequently the reason we doubt that God even cares about us, right? When things aren't going our way, we think, do you even care? Are you with us? And not even that, when things are really, really hard, we, th- we start to think maybe he's against us. And what we see in the, uh, the story of Acts is that when the church suffers, uh, it, it's interesting that it's always a way in which God plants the seeds that he later grows uh, fruit for the gospel through the suffering of the church. It's not to say that the persecution against the church was justified. It is to say, though, that God's grace transcends human evil, and he has power and wisdom to bring about his kingdom purposes even through and in spite of human wickedness. And so the point of Luke here is that God is moving his gospel out into places that have previously not been touched by God's grace and his gospel. And so hearts that are waiting and longing for reconciliation to their creator, they haven't been told about the good news, they're now experiencing God's grace. And so the first thing I want to see here in this text is that um, it says that those who were scattered preached the word. Um, Those who were scattered preached the word. Now who's those? Who are the people who are being scattered? It's not the apostles. It's not a select few. It's everyone. It's the whole church. And so it says that they are evangelizing, or they're good-newsing. That's literally what it means to preach here in this context. They're good-newsing people with God's word. And so it's not the apostles. They're still in Jerusalem. It's everyone else. And so here's what Luke is showing us, and I want to start here this morning, that the church bears witness uh, organically that it is a people movement, not a personality movement. It's not one or a select few people who are used by God in this economy of the kingdom. It's everyone Uh, the apostles aren't there. In fact, this is a story about Philip, who, if you remember back a few weeks, was selected to be one of seven guys who took care of widows and made sure they had bread. And now Luke spends an entire chapter on this guy who makes sure old ladies have... All right, new tires? We're good. All right. Woohoo! Stand back. We're just going to start changing those every week. All right. So, uh, man, I don't know where we were. Yeah, okay, so the apostles... These are the guys who lay a foundation. 
right? They're eyewitnesses to who Jesus is and what he's done. And now they've done their job in a sense, and they've proclaimed the gospel. And now the gospel gets to go out through everyone. In other words, the way God's mission unfolds is it's through the whole church. It's never just a select few. It always unfolds where everyone gets to play and no one's on the sidelines. And so this, this kingdom story is a story where we see that it's mobilized by the whole church, not just a few. What I want to ask you to consider this morning is how is your own life being dispersed? How am I a person through whom God wants to good news the world around me? That I'm actually an agent through whom God decides I'm going to represent the kingdom through, through me and through you and through each one of us. And so it may be through suffering that God's mobilizing you to share the joy and hope you have with people you would otherwise not know and have a chance to share with. Others of us are embedded in workplaces and schools and neighborhoods through hospitality. You're actually able to bear witness to the kingdom. And so it's this place too. It's not just through the people, but it's the place that's interesting here. And so uh, one of the ways that the gospel moves forward is it moves forward, uh, or God's mission, I'm sorry, it localizes. Here's the next point I want to make. It, it mobilizes the whole church, but it also localizes the church. The text says that they went down to a city in Samaria, or the city of Samaria. It's probably one of the key uh, cities in, in this whole ethnic area of Samaria. And the point here is that in Acts, the mission always touches down in a local place, that the people who are carrying the gospel forward focus on a place. They don't just kind of wander haphazardly. And so what, one of the things that we see is in, the, in the story of Acts is that there's enough density and diversity in a city for the gospel to hit a city and then go a thousand different directions from the city. And I have to tell you, we are in a strategic spot here in central Beaverton. Right? Not, not only do we want to see the whole church, all of you, mobilized for the gospel, we also want to be localized. And this is why it's part of Colossae's vision to be who we are, where we are. Because let's be honest, when we're not focused on a place, it's very easy to just kind of not be focused at all. Right? It's actually places that help us pay attention to the hurt of our city, help us pay attention to the need of our city, help us pay attention to individuals in our city. And so when we're just kind of scattered and saying, I hope the gospel just kind of lands somewhere, we're often not accountable to the place that God's planted us. And so this is a, a movement that's always focused on a location. And so our, since our vision meetings over the summer, we have prayed specifically for Beaverton. And we've said, God, we want to see your kingdom come in Beaverton. And part of the way we've approached that is to back up and repent for ways we've not cared for Beaverton. To say, God, we actually need to repent for not loving our neighbor enough. Because we've been detached from place, some of us. And so part of being the church and planting in Beaverton is to say, we want to be attached to a place. We want to pay attention to what the Spirit of God is doing in this place, in Beaverton. And in this school district, and in the fabric of this city. Because it's where we live, and it's where we work. And so... That's our prayer, because our, our prayer is actually that, God, you'd help us to bring joy to Beaverton. And that's the result, that the mission mo moves through the people in a place, and it brings joy. 
Let me just show you Luke's description of what the mission then looked like. He says, um, unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Now, to state the obvious, we don't often see things this dramatically today in uh, the church in the modern West, at least not very often, right? It's not to say that these things don't happen. That would be a categorical mistake to rule out God's supernatural intervention. However, I would suggest two things to you about this story. First of all, this story in Acts represents a very unique stage of salvation history because the gospel has just crossed over from Jewish, strictly Jewish ethnic boundary lines into Samaria, which is a different ethnicity, and it's a different socio-religious and political atmosphere. And there's a dramatic... Um, rivalry between these two. It's like if you take organ ducks and beavers and like ramp that up times a thousand with lots of bloodshed, you're starting to get close to the hatred, right, between uh, Samaria and Jews. And so when the Samaritans believe the gospel, it comes with some drama, right? There's power to it. Because on one hand, think about being excluded your entire life and all of a sudden belonging, right? It's hard to believe. It's hard to convince yourself that you really do belong if that doesn't come with some, like, with some power. And also think about the ones who've been exclusive against these people, that now they belong with you. Now, think about the kinds of things that you would have to experience in order to really take to heart that these people are actually no longer to be hated but are equals with you. This is what the gospel's doing. And so when they first believe, it says that they didn't immediately receive the Spirit. Every other time in the, gospel of, or in the story of Acts, people believe and receive the Spirit immediately. Uh, but this one time, it says that when the apostles came from Jerusalem to Samaria to see what was going on, they laid hands on the people and prayed and they received the Spirit. I think it's God's mercy and grace to get these two groups to work together. Right? to get the apostles to come and actually physically touch people that they've hated their whole life and say, you're with us. The Spirit of God's in you. Think about how symbolically powerful that is for the apostles. And then think about how symbolically powerful that is for the Samaritans to be people who are now being included by the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus raised from the dead, and now you're getting the Spirit, and you're saying, I belong with you? This is a glue moment between two hated people, and now they're bonding together. And so, uh, again, this is a, a very in, intense moment in salvation history. But secondly, what I want to say to you is that categorically, both of these things that are happening in this story are still in play just as much today as ever. We see people receive spiritual help from the gospel. They're spiritually restored by the gospel. We also see people receive material help and restored by the church. The church also... Like we want to help people spiritually and physically and materially, right? If we say to people, um, God only cares about what you believe, what we're doing is we're saying we're Gnostics. We actually want to pit physical and spiritual apart. And the Bible never lets us do that. The Bible always holds those two things together. There's no dualism in the Bible. Everything's always integrated. And so it's not just about what you believe. It's also about the state of your life. And so at the same time, if we say it's only about what you have and possess and your physical condition and not about who how you're doing spiritually, then we're saying uh, essentially what secularism says, which is you'll be really happy if you have the right physical conditions. Right? And we're saying, no, there's actually far more. The gospel pronounces there's far more. God's restoring the whole creation, reconciling you spiritually to your creator and actually restoring you 
physically. And so the church has to move forward with a mission that's integrated, that's both and. We saw this a couple weeks ago that the church was committed to a ministry of word and deed. We serve the poor and we preach the gospel, right? We want to see people's lives uh, materially better on one hand, but it's pointless if they're not spiritually restored. We also want to see people spiritually restored, but we can't say to our neighbor, I love you, and not do anything to improve their physical condition if they're in poverty or if they're... Are you with me? So this is what's going on here. And it brings joy to the city. The city receives joy because the church is mobilized. Everyone's playing. It's localized. They're focused on a place, and they're integrated. Right? They're offering a gospel that touches your, your everyday life and, and your spiritual life, and those two things are woven together, and they're never to be dissected. And so it's this balanced ministry approach that leads to joy in the city. But as the story continues, we see that on one hand, as that mission is so exciting and it's so city-impacting, there's also misunderstanding. So uh, what we see in this next story is a story of a guy named Simon, who shows us that you can receive the gospel and misunderstand it at the same time. Look at his story with me. Verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Try that, somebody, sometime. Like, just tell your friends, I am somebody great, right? Like, just, I want to just, I don't know why they didn't just kick that guy out of town. Like, who does he think he is? And so they all paid attention to him. Uh, from the, the least to the greatest, right? This guy had a social impact across all spectrums, saying that the people said, this man is the power of God that is called great. This is a pretty elevated person. He's a rock star. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic, right? Uh, they're not tricks, they're illusions, okay? And so, uh, I'm sorry, I just can't resist if you're into arrested development. All right, so verse 12. But when they believed Philip, so they were amazed with Simon. Now they're amazed with the gospel that Philip's preaching. Philip, uh, when, they, when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed he was amazed. So they were amazed at him. Now he's actually the one who's amazed. And as the story moves to the focus on Simon, he actually gets a really bad rap in all of the commentaries. And I think what's interesting about Simon is the text says that he believed and was baptized. And it's really easy to read right over that and think, okay, big deal. He assented to information and he got in the water. But the text says he believed, and it's the same word as everybody else who believed. And he was baptized just like everybody else. And when you're baptized, by the way, in the first century, these people, to get baptized was to take an enormous risk. It is to risk their life. And to be baptized is a public declaration of allegiance to Jesus. It says, he's king, he's Lord over my life, and I'm aligned with him. I'm following Jesus. I'm one with him. And so to make that public declaration is a huge risk. And so the people are hearing the gospel, they're believing, they're baptized, Simon joins in, uh, and it says that he continued with Philip, which isn't a very normal word for somebody who's a disciple or a follower. Uh, it, it's kind of more like it's saying that he was a groupie. So he believed, he was baptized, and he wanted to get on board with whatever Philip was smoking, right? Like, he was a groupie. He was really more attached. And so 
Philip impressed him, in other words. Philip really impressed him, and there was, there was a show in town that was somehow a better spectacle than his. That's probably how he was interpreting it. But on some level, it says that he had given his life and his allegiance to Jesus. Um, look at what it says in verse 14. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. In other words, think about it like this. Um, if uh, you want to make sure something is going well, you send a delegate, right, to make sure this thing is actually true, right? So the Samaritan people are believing the gospel. Uh, the apostles just send a couple of delegates to go, really, like, these people received the gospel? Let's check this out. Is it actually the gospel they're believing? Uh, we just want to see for ourselves. And so they do. They go down, and uh, they, they came down, it says in verse 15, and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for they had, he had not yet fallen on any of them. This is the gift of salvation, that when you believe in Jesus, you receive his Spirit as a present experience of, his, uh, of him in your life. Uh, it's a relational gift that God says, here's my spirit. By my spirit, you'll experience me working in your life. Uh, and so the spirit hadn't fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the spirit. Uh, and again, this is to help guard against confusion and, and just to check the authenticity of these people's reception of the gospel. Now, verse 18, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. That is a cool technique. Let me hook you up with some cash so I can do that too. This is what's going on. This is amazing. Look at verse 20. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Love this response. This is the title of today's sermon, actually. May your silver perish with you. Because... You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You're deep in sin, bro. That's what he's saying, right? And Simon answered, pray for for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Verse 25, now those who had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, uh, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So, what's going on? Simon is absolutely amazed by the power he sees, and he's encountered the kingdom of God, but he also has a radically misshapen view of God and God's good news. Part of the reality for all of us is this. Our past will absolutely shape our present understanding of who God is and what he offers. This is huge for us. If we don't look back on our story and understand how it's impacting our view today, we will always be at the mercy of our past. And Simon has a past. His past is about manipulating people. It's about gaining control and exercising power to amaze and impress people. And that past puts a lens on what he receives in the present from God. And some of us have a past that would never conceive of a God who is self-giving. That in and of itself doesn't fit your radar, that he is somehow good and loving. And so there's a resistance to actually be a part 
of what he's about because there's a fear that he's actually out to get you because that was what your dad was like or that was what your past has shown you. Others of us may see um, all authority figures as just people who are in the way. And so when we receive, see the gospel, it's actually something that's in the way of my own self-expression. Or perhaps we've viewed authority figures as people who just, they're people to please so we can get what we want. And God is there to hook us up. The point is this, that our past shapes our present. If we're not careful to unpack it and see how it's affecting us. And, and here's what we see here. When the apostles pray for the Spirit to come on His people... Um, they believe this message about Jesus. What Simon sees is a, a way to have power over others. Right? The gospel comes as God giving up his power to restore others, but Simon misinterprets it as a way to get power over others. He sees the, the good news of what Jesus has done as a technique to gain greater influence. And so he mistakes God's living presence as a controllable technique for his own self-improvement. In other words, he's reduced to the gospel. He's jumped in and he's believed, and yet at the same time, he's misunderstood. And I would say to all of us today that we have the tension within us of being able to receive the gospel and greatly misunderstand it if we're not careful to allow God to continually reshape our view of ourselves and who he is. And so he mistakes the nature of the gospel as something of a transaction, something that has to be paid for rather than merely received. There's an exchange in the gospel, Jesus in my place, and now I get to stand in his, but there is no transaction, there is only a gift. So Peter says, may your silver perish because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Here's what's so crucial for us today. Depending on your own unique story and how you might distort the gospel in one direction or another, what I want to look at here is there's a beautiful readiness in Simon to receive and a danger for all of us, too, of reading our own autobiography into God's grace. And every human relationship other than the gospel bends towards transactions. I'll do something for you so you can do something for me. I don't know if you've ever experienced just receiving something. Have you ever gotten a surprise gift where somebody just pops in and says, here, this is for you, and you don't have something to give back? How awkward do you feel? Right? You're like, i got to run to Target. i got to do something to give back to you. And it puts you in this place of, like, it just throws you off equilibrium, right? And so I would say, suggest to you that this transactional view of God and his grace is just poison to our souls. I remember when I first came to the Lord as a child, I actually, I I understood I wanted to avoid something called hell, and I wanted something called heaven, and so yes, I can pray that, and then I'm good, right? But what would inevitably happen as I grew older, I'd fall into patterns of sin, and then I'd feel really bad, And then the only way I knew how to deal with that was to then try to do something really good. And so I remember just being a teenager, I'd fall into some kind of pattern of sin, and then I'd go, oh, I need to like do some Bible reading, right, and some spiritual disciplines, and I'd get after it, and I'd go serve, or I'd do something, and then I'd feel like maybe finally I had 
earned something back from God and I could be cool with him again. There's this transactional spirituality. The problem was the more I kept reading my Bible, the more I kept undoing that view of God. And I finally came to the realization that there's actually nothing I can bring to him. And so Simon, on one hand, wants to just, he wants a self-improvement story, where if I just offer some money, I can improve upon my own life. Jesus is saying, no, I actually don't want to make any improvements on your life. I want to cut your entire life down and give you a whole new life. I'm actually not going to give you a better self. I'm going to give you myself. So who you most deeply are is rooted in who I am. And this is the gospel. And so when he mistook the nature of salvation as just power to possess over people, he also viewed it as a transaction. Uh, And so it's, it's a radical misunderstanding of the nature of grace. Simon's a brilliant example of what happens for so many of us who, like myself, began a spiritual journey of transactions. And maybe that's you here today. You've got a transaction narrative running through your mind and your heart as you relate to God and His grace. Some of you are here today and you have your silver to offer to God. If I can just give you this, then I can have what you offer. And maybe your silver today, your way of trying to buy favor is through spiritual disciplines, it's your Bible reading, or it's your, just, you come early to serve, or you're just trying to keep your nose clean at work, and you're not uh, being rude to your coworkers, and man, maybe if I continue to do that, I'll I'll, I'll earn favor. Some of you, it's just, it's your parenting, like, if if I just do a good job here, then God will bless, and I'll be viewed as okay with Him, or some of us, it's our it's our earnings and giving, and there's a whole list of things. Anything could actually degenerate down into silver to offer to God. Whatever that effort is that you're burdened by, that you anxiously expend yourself to do in order to achieve or obtain God's favor and kindness, let me just encourage you today to let it perish. Just let it perish. Because you can't obtain the gift of God with any human effort. Perhaps when you see your activity as a response to what he's already given you, then you'll be able to partner with him. But until then, you're just burdened by your effort. Until it's a response to a gift, it will just be a burden. So um, one of the things that happens for us is we begin to see the gospel in clarity. And this is what's happening for, for Simon with Peter. He says here, let me buy that. And Peter says, no, actually, like, let that die. I want to encourage you today to let any effort to earn today to just die. Because what's offered to you is offered freely. Um, There was this friend of Charles Wesley about 200 years ago who, after reading through a commentary on Galatians, came to the conclusion that God's grace was free. And he says this about it. When he realized that it wasn't his wisdom or his righteousness or that would achieve redemption or get God to love him as a transaction, um, he didn't get his life together to say, now save me, now accept me, now value me. He read Luther's words in this commentary to Galatians, and he said, uh, where Luther says, we have nothing to do, nothing but accept. He says this. He says, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love 
that I burst into tears. When we recognize that there is nothing for us to do to be accepted by God, it leaves us without any burden. It leaves us in a place of only being able to receive. And that's what I want to invite you to today. I don't know where you're at with God. I don't know what it is that you want to offer to God today. But let me just tell you this. The gospel says that all you can do is receive, and I want to invite you to receive it. To let your silver perish and to let your burdens fall with it. To say, I am accepted and I have worth based on the merit of Jesus and not on my own. I don't know where you are in relation to the gospel today, but wherever you are, I want to encourage you to look at any transaction as a distortion to what God's on and uh, what God's about in your life. Um, see, when Peter says, you can't offer money, I love what Simon does. He responds, and he's, he's got such a beautiful response, and this is such a great light for us as we go forward, because guess what? You're going to have a distortion of the gospel somewhere in your life. You're going to have a misunderstanding of God somewhere in your life, in every stage of your life. And so here's what you do. You do what Peter says. When you're confronted with a misunderstanding about God, instead of trying to defend it, instead of going to shame, instead of saying, oh, I shouldn't have ever misunderstood God's grace, you just do this. You say, oh, pray for me. That's what he says. He says, pray for me. I don't want what you said to come upon me, right? You say, God, what I really want is a right view of you. What I want is a right response to you. And so we go to the one who intercedes for us. We say, Jesus, would you correct that view in me? Would you intercede? God, don't let me be driven by a life that has, misshaped, uh, has a misshaped understanding of who you are. Let me live a life of response to who you really are, not who I think you are. When we're confronted with our own treason to the gospel, we simply lean on God's intercession on our behalf. Right? Um, we say, God, may I not be that way. Would you renew my vision of you now? And that's what we do at the table every week. We come to the table to say, God, would you renew your, our vision of you today? That we would see you not as a God who offers us something based on our merit, but offers us a free spot at the table. And we come and we take bread and we take cup, dip it in the wine or juice. We all, sorry, we're in a public school, so it has to be juice. Um, we take the bread and we dip it in the juice and we say, God, you have interceded for me. You've done everything here. And so I just receive. And I leave the table as a recipient, not having brought anything other than myself, ready and available. Let's pray.